We are in Luke chapter 14 today. As you turn there, just want to remind you <clears throat> that the idea of biblical discipleship is that it is the process by which we are being conformed into the image of Christ. It is a process that takes place over time. It involves conformity or change in our life, and the change is towards one goal, and that is to be the image of Christ, to be like Christ. And so we've been exploring these last few weeks what it means to be like Christ and how do we get there. And we've seen in uh, recent weeks uh, the uh, abiding principles of abiding in Christ and abiding in his love, abiding in his word and so forth. All those are, are part of it. I got... Uh, an advertisement in the mail some time ago uh, to join something that was called uh, the Quality Paperback Book Club. Maybe you've gotten one of these. <clears throat> on the envelope, in big letters, and on the top of the offer page, it said, bold red letters, four, four books, four bucks. No commitment now or ever and it struck me that that is really the spirit of this age no commitment now or ever get what you can as cheaply as you can with no commitment now or ever too many people approached Christianity and wonder what it is to be a Christian with that kind of a mindset what, what's the bare minimum I have to do to get in the club and to stay there? And what is this talk about commitment? Luke 14, 25. Now great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, I'll just stop there for a moment and, and think about the setting here in which he's ushering these remarks <clears throat> because we would have to list Jesus as one of the worst salesmen in history if he was trying to talk people into Christianity this was not the way to do it if he was trying to get people to join his bandwagon he just failed if he was trying to evangelize people in the way we normally think of evangelism in our days, he would have failed that course. I mean, after all, here is a multitude of people. How many? We don't know, but in other places where we read about a multitude following him, he fed 3,000 or more than 5,000 at one time. So we're talking 
a lot of people. Perfect opportunity to get them drawn in further. The great multitudes went with him and he turned to them and said, now what he says to them is not something mean. It's not something discouraging. Seen in the right light is it is encouraging because he wants them to know where he is going and what it will cost them to follow him there. Luke 9.51 we go back just a couple passages. Luke 9.51. This is a turning point in the gospel of Luke. Luke 9.51. Now it came to pass. When the time had come for him to be received up. That he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He, he set his face like a flint. He steadfastly set his face. From Luke 9.51 on. It was to the cross. No detours. No rabbit trails. No ifs, ands, and buts. It was to the cross. To Jerusalem. To Calvary. To a cross. And so he knows where he's going. And the multitudes went with him. But they don't know what's coming. They need to know what's going to happen. What it will mean to really follow him. Not at a distance. But to really follow him. In our day. It has become. At least in our society. Very acceptable to be. To label oneself as a Christian. Even sometimes as a believer. There are a lot of people who claim to be Christians. Who probably don't have the faintest idea what it means. But what if we were to be. Called or we were to call ourselves. Followers of Jesus Christ. In the workplace, how would that go over? If maybe you might let someone know, well, I go to church. They're going to infer from that you're probably a Christian. I mean, what other kind of nuts going to do that on a Sunday? You know, a, a Christian in, in our society is one who doesn't cuss as much as he used to and goes to church whenever he or she can. <clears throat> but what if they knew you were a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ that's what marked you and Jesus wants them to know if they are coming after him if they are going to be a disciple you need to understand the terms of discipleship now I want to make a couple of clarifications here uh, note at the end of verse 26 and 27. <clears throat> it says, He cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> 
there's some confusion about this word be what does it mean to be his disciple and some have uh, errantly taken this to mean that this is a way of becoming a disciple of Christ in order for a person to become a disciple of Christ a follower of Christ they have to do these things first that is wrong that would be have been the Greek word ginomai to become but Jesus uses the infinitive aine which means to be it's a different I know this is a little bit technical but just hang with me for a moment because it's very very important it's the difference between uh, what grammarians call a stative verb and an active verb now you know an active verb something's being done right there's action taking place a stative verb is merely the state of being how things are it's a state of how things are at the time so it's a for a person to be in a state of a relationship called disciple this is what will um, typify those people this is not saying how a person becomes one. This is not active. This is not ginomai. This is not telling a person you have to do these things in order to become a disciple. Rather it's saying if a person is a disciple, stative, they are, then this is what they will be like. You see the difference? Very important. Because otherwise you could confuse this really with works. I have to do this and I have to do these things in order to become a disciple and that would lead down a wrong trail and sadly some have, have gone down that trail misunderstanding the word be instead of uh, become. Um, uh, let, me, let me just give you a, an illustration of that how we might use it in uh, more modern terms if, uh, if I say, or some, uh, if someone attends Norwalk High School and not Martinsdale High School, okay? They attend Norwalk High School and not Martinsdale High School. They cannot be a student of Martinsdale High School because they are a student of Norwalk. So you can't be this if you're that that's the idea state of being <clears throat> so that's that's the idea here uh, it has to do with being in Christ if you are in Christ and that's your state of being hope I haven't muddied that too much <laughs> it's important though but we have then set before us what we might call marks of a true disciple these are these are some indications of a person who really is in a state of being a disciple of Jesus they, they are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ here's some ways that you could know that about them or about you <clears throat> um, and before we look at these marks I want to go back just a little bit further in Luke to Luke chapter 6 and verse 40 where Jesus begins the, the teaching on these kinds of things of what it means to be a disciple with a very important statement in Luke 640 
Luke 6.40, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. So at the end of the discipleship process, in other words, the disciple looks like and is like the master. That's the goal of biblical discipleship. We're going through a process by which we are being conformed into the image of the master, Jesus Christ. Everyone who is perfectly trained, when you go through the the training of what God is taking you through, the end result is to look like Him. He will be like Christ, like His Master. So that's our, that's our goal here. And here are some marks of what that looks like to help us kind of gauge ourselves. Are we making progress in this or not? So first of all, we have the mark of love. Luke 14, 26. <clears throat> if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, he cannot be considered as my disciple. Now, there's a couple ways of, of understanding this. The, uh, the most uh, popular way is by comparison. That is what Jesus, Jesus is talking about here. It's certainly not that you hate your husband or wife because you're told to love your husband and love your wife. Uh, it's not that you hate your father and mother. You're told to honor your father and your mother. Uh, you're told to love your children and so forth. So it's not, it's not that. But it is comparative. That is, if you were to compare the degree of love for Christ to love for any other person, no matter how close, and even your own self, it would seem like hate in comparison. So far apart would those things be. Now, one of the ways that we know that this is what Jesus means is not only because uh, of the other commands to love each other and how would that square with this, but also look at a parallel passage, Matthew 10, 37 through 39. Matthew 10 37 through 39. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So we see in that parallel passage, it's put in terms of comparison, more than me. But in the, um, the oriental way of expressing things, it would have meant even more to them 
to say, he who does not hate so-and-so cannot follow me, because they understood the idea of such separation, loving someone so much more. In fact, we see that, that idea, if you love someone a great deal more than you love someone else, even if you love both of them, it seems like love compared to hate. Look at Genesis 29. And this we will call not only by comparison, but by choice. Now we're moving into a new area that is even more important. It's not just by comparison, it is by choice, this love for Christ. Higher than any other love, yes. But also the idea of choice is embedded in that very statement. So Genesis 29, verse 30. Then Jacob also went in to Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. You remember, Jacob had gone to Laban, and he thought he was going to get Rachel for a wife, and he worked for him seven years, and lo and behold, he got Leah instead of Rachel. Well, he got duped on that one, but he said, I still want Rachel, so he works another seven years for Rachel, and he gets her too. And so then he goes into Rachel, and he, he loved her more than. You see the comparative there. And he served with Laban still another seven years. But as we keep reading, when the Lord saw that Leah was Samer, hated, not just loved less, Samer, hated. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Now, it wasn't that... Um, Jacob didn't love Leah at all. Uh, for someone who didn't love her, he had a lot of kids by her. Uh, so, but he loved Rachel more. He, Rachel was his choice. Rachel was always his first choice, right? From the very beginning of the story with, with Jacob and Laban, Rachel was the one. He chose her first. I mean, that was what, who he lived for. He chose her. But it doesn't mean he didn't love Leah at all. It just means in comparison. But his choice was Rachel. Now, as we carry on down that train of thought, we see in Romans 9.13 something very interesting. Romans 9.13. And the same Jacob that we are reading about in Genesis 29 is mentioned in Romans 9.13. So we're coming full circle in a way here. Romans 9.13 says, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Meaning that Jacob was the chosen one. And how do we know that God meant that by this statement? Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. How do we know he meant Jacob was the chosen one? 
by the previous context. Look at uh, verse 10. Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. What was the basis of the choice? It was before they had even been born, pointed out specifically for us so we don't miss this, before they had done anything good or anything evil. There was nothing to love about them. There was nothing to hate about them. There was nothing about them at all to cause one to choose one and reject the other. There was nothing about them at all to make that basis of choice. So it wasn't because of them. It was simply because of God's eternal choice. That, that as it says here, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. That before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in him. And so it was for Jacob. And he marks that. He talks about that choice in terms of love-hate. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. It is a matter of choice. It came down to a choice. Now, when we go back to Luke 14, we can plug these ideas back into this Semitic background, this understanding of how they would have received this, understood this. And it makes, I think, a little bit more sense to us. I believe we can, we're used to and can understand the comparison idea that we love God, love Christ so much more than we love others that it would seem like hate in comparison. But also, don't forget the choice aspect of it. That it's not just that we say, oh God, I love you so much more. But it is by the choice of our life, how we choose to live, whom we choose to follow, whom we choose to obey. If a loved one said, this is what I think you should do, but you are really feeling strongly, strongly God is saying, this is what you should do. Who are you going to follow? It can sometimes come down to a very difficult choice like that. Even family members against each other. When my dad told me to never mention the name Jesus in his house, I had a choice to make. Uh, and it wasn't easy to do it. But who, who you love will really be indicated by what choices you make, right? Even in human relationships, the choices you make indicate who you love and how you love them. If you are really going to love God above all, 
The choices you make in life will reflect that. How are your choices saying, God is my Lord? How, how is the way you're living your life, the things you are deciding to do, saying to God, you are my God. I'm going to follow you. It's a choice, you see. Um, our, our love for Christ is a mark of our discipleship. And since our love is demonstrated by commitment, then our our commitment is now the second mark that we have here in this passage, verse 27. The mark of love, and secondly, verse 27, the mark of commitment. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I was... Uh, <clears throat> out shooting baskets with my grandson Aaron when he was a lot younger and a lot shorter even shorter than I am <clears throat> and we had one of those uh, uh, hard plastic portable basketball goals you know what I'm talking about <laughs> multicolor kind of things and adjustable and all this it was out on our driveway and <clears throat> we went out there and shot some baskets and of course, I made more baskets than he did. I think he was four. <laughs> but he was making a few, and I was trying to encourage him. Aaron, if you just keep practicing and keep practicing, stay out here and do it, you'll make more and more. You'll get better at it. And I went inside to rest. But within a few minutes, Aaron comes in, and, and said, Papa, I, I made 10 baskets in a row. What? You, you didn't make 10 baskets in a row. And he said, I'll show you. So, All right, I want to see this. So I, I go out to the basketball goal to find that it has been lowered. <laughs> From up here, I mean, we had only set it like eight feet. From up here to down here, the lowest setting. And so he's standing over the the net going bong, bong, ten in a row. <laughs> what did he do? He lowered the goal. We tend to do that as Christians. We lower the goal of what God is really expecting of us. Uh, this passage is sometimes referred to as one of the hard sayings of Jesus. Not because it's hard to understand, but because it's so hard to really do. We like the statements of Jesus about loving others and so forth, being nice, do unto others, love your neighbor. We like that one. We don't do it, but we like it. But this is one of those hard sayings. And sometimes we like to lower the goal Maybe he really meant something different. Something more attainable. Let me tell you, if it's something you can attain, he didn't mean it. Because what he is talking about is something you can only attain if he is in you. If you abide in him and he abides in you. He is talking about death. 
There's a commitment, first of all, to not follow self. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be or cannot be considered my disciple. A commitment to not follow self is the first step and often the most difficult because that's what is most natural to us to seek a life of self-fulfillment. Uh, and your friends will tell you, you, you ought to do what's good for you. You know, fulfill your life and so forth. That sounds good to us. We're, that's our natural tendency. But we have to have a commitment to not follow self. That is recognizing our cross. Whoever does not bear his cross. You have to recognize your cross. It is not what is commonly thought of as Oh, a bad situation I'm in. I guess that's just my cross I have to bear. Or a health situation. Maybe you have a chronic condition you are dealing with. Uh, well, that's just my cross I have to bear. Or this relationship or whatever. No, it's not that. It is a means of death. We are looking for something else for our cross other than what the Lord has designed for us. <clears throat> I read <clears throat> years ago, in fact, I have a date on this, 1982, so this is a long time ago. I, I clipped this little thing. It was uh, from a, actually an article in the, the Christian Deaf Fellowship uh, written by Carlisle Saylor. And <clears throat> it, was, it reads like a, a skit or a play or something. I would have loved to have seen them uh, I've known a number of deaf people. In fact, our neighbor uh, uh, across the street from us uh, for several years there in Woodmayer was a deaf pastor. But <clears throat> let me read this article to you. I think it's telling. Well, <clears throat> here I am, Lord. You said, take up your cross, and I'm here to do it. It's not easy, you know, this self-denial thing. I mean to go through with it, through, yes, sir. I bet you wish more people were willing to be disciples like me. I've counted the cost and surrendered my life, and it's not an easy road. You mind if I look over the crosses? I'd kind of like a new one. I'm not fussy, you understand, but a disciple has to be relevant these days. I was wondering, are there any that are vinyl padded? I was thinking of attracting others, see? And if I could show them a comfortable cross, I'm sure I could win a lot more. And I need something durable so I can treasure it always. Oh, is there one that's sort of flat so I could fit it under my coat? One shouldn't be too obvious, you know. Funny. There doesn't seem to be much choice here. Just that coarse, rough wood. I mean, that would hurt. Don't you have something more distinctive, Lord? I can tell you right now that none of my friends are going to be impressed by this shoddy workmanship. They'll think I'm a nut or something. And my family will be just mortified. What's that? It's either one of these or forget the whole thing? 
But Lord, I want to be your disciple. Just being with you, that's all that counts. But life has to have a balance too. But you don't understand, nobody lives that way today. Who's going to be attracted by this self-denial bit? I mean, I want to do it, but let's not go overboard. Start getting radical like this, and they'll have me off to the funny farm. I mean, a, being a disciple is challenging and exciting, and I want to do it, but I have some rights too, you know. Now, let's see. No blood, okay? I just can't imagine the thought of that, Lord. Lord, Jesus, now where do you suppose he went? called the padded cross I think as we think about our cross anything but that rough wooden cross that really means death to me whoever does not bear his cross remember where Jesus was going to Calvary to his cross and the multitudes were wanting to follow him he's telling them here's how it's going to be whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple <clears throat> as we have seen and, and we have the advantage of having more revelation of the rest of the New Testament that this taking up our cross this being crucified with, self, to, with Christ has to do with denying the old man of, of counting our old man as crucified with Christ so that we live for God but <clears throat> I'm sure it was not as clear there although they understood the radical idea of a cross what a cruel but common way of executing people back then they had seen it done the bloodiness, the horror, the agony of it the people had seen, they knew that talking about a cross meant death. Look back at what Jesus says in Luke 9, 23. <clears throat> <clears throat> Then Jesus said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. See that first part? If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. And that idea is also present in Luke 14, the verse we're working with in 1427. And Jesus doesn't give the whole statement again. But the idea is that in bearing your cross, the first step that has to be taken is to deny self. To say, I'm not going to follow self. I'm going to deny self. If you never get to that point of denying yourself, you will never follow him. And to deny yourself takes a radical step. It's not just changing a few things. It's counting yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God 
which brings us to our next point, the commitment to follow the Savior. Because notice it goes on to say, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's not just dying or, or counting yourself crucified with Christ, but counting yourself resurrected alive with him because you follow after him. We identify with the death of Jesus, but we also identify with the resurrection of Jesus. It's not just the cross, the death to self, but the following Jesus, which is required. And so that is following him. There's not uh, a void there. You just count yourself as dead, and that's the end of everything. But rather, you count yourself dead to self and to the old life, and alive to the new life in Christ, whereby you can follow him. So there's a mark of love. There's a mark of commitment. Commitment to not follow self, but a commitment to follow the Savior. And sometimes then the question might be that, well, a commitment to what degree? Well, look at the, uh, the examples that Jesus gives here by these short parables. For which of you... Intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. In, the, in these parables of cost counting, the first has to do with the prospect of ridicule. If you miscalculate the cost, you could lead, lead yourself to ridicule. Keep in mind verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned to them and said. He wants them to count the cost, to understand what it means to be a disciple. Because if they don't go in with their eyes open to this, they might be telling people, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm a disciple of Jesus, all the way to Calvary, and say, uh, oops, I'm, not long, I'm no longer a disciple. And ridicule would be heaped upon them. From time to time, I've met Christians, I've known some, um, who have come to profess a faith in Christ, and have announced at work, I'm a changed man, and all this, Two months later, they're back in the bar and in the old life and so forth. And the people are saying, hey, John, what, remember two months ago you were saying you were this born-again guy? Now look at you, ha, ha, ha. And they ridicule. Jesus says, you need to understand the seriousness of this. Miscalculation can lead to ridicule, but worse, it can lead to ruin. Verse 31. <clears throat> or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and, and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. 
And so this calculation is much more important. It's not just whether people are going to ridicule you, but it, it is the prospect of the loss of all things, of total ruin, if you miscalculate this. Uh, it has been suggested by uh, uh, William Hendrickson that the, actually the second parable here is the parable of the wise man that he understands that not to follow Christ would lead to utter ruin in the end. That he cannot be better than or uh, undo him who's coming, that is Christ. And that he yields to that, whatever the conditions are that Christ gives. And that may well be the idea here. The, the first is a miscalculation of, yeah, I think I can, but not really thinking about it. The other guy's seriously thinking about it and, and he says, what are your conditions for surrender? And surrenders to the Lord. Because to miscalculate would be utter ruin. So those are some parables on cost counting. And, and I, I think in our modern evangelism and discipleship, we, we probably soft pedal this stuff, don't we? I mean, how often do we talk to people about really counting the cost or what it means to be? And one of the things, I think one of the reasons we do that is we don't want to confuse it with a works salvation. You see, there's a fine line in the presentation of this. We don't want them to think they have to do something to, to become a Christian that is works. And so we back off of that too far. So I think it's, it's fine to say this is what a Christian life is like. You may have a misunderstanding. But the only way to get there, you can't do that on your own. The only way to get there is surrender to Christ. He will bring that about in your life. It's not that you do it. It's that Christ can bring that about in your life. Gentry Tate, a, a man I met who just retired bought his dream house boat and all this and it was set I knocked on his door one day and I wanted to share the gospel with him and he invited me in and I talked to him about it and he said oh can you come back another time I want to think about this and I came back the next week and we talked and he said well Gary does this mean I have to give up everything if I'm going to follow Christ I mean, I just got this house. You know I have worked my whole life for this dream house. I, I've got the house I want. I, I've got the car I want. I've got the boat I want. I even have the dog I want. And I have to give all that up just to be a Christian? I said, Gentry, no, you have to be willing to give it all up. You have to count that all that stuff that you have is less important than your relationship with Christ. And he may say, Gentry, I want you to use your house for this. I want you to sell your car or give your car to this person. He may, he may say that or he might not. But you have, to, you have to say, I love Christ and I want to follow him more than I love these things. He said, I can't do it. I can't do it. That was Saturday. 
Sunday morning, Gentry came to church, and as we were singing our final song, he came running down the aisle, weeping, and took the mic from me. We didn't have these kind back then, and wanted to tell everyone, I want you to know that I want to follow Christ. I don't care what the cost is. That man was saved. But he understood. I mean, he, he wanted to calculate it. He wanted to know. Verse 33. The cost is everything. The issue is ownership. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. You cannot consider yourself a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ if you are clinging on to other things that you are telling Christ, no, you have no part of this. You have no ownership in this. My house, my wife, my kids, my life, that's my stuff, and I'm Lord of it, not you. If that's your heart, don't say, I am a follower of Christ. The cost is everything. The issue is ownership. Now, if you, if you look at your stuff, your life, your, your family, your house, everything, as who's the owner of those things? Not, not the mortgage company, no. The real owner, God. Is God the Lord of your house, of your car, of your life, of your family, of your business, of your job, of your money, of your 401k, of your future, of your hopes? Is he the Lord of all those things? Then he's the owner, right? He may let you enjoy those things for a season or for a lifetime. He may add more things to you to enjoy, but never forget who the owner of those things is, right? The cost is everything, but the issue is ownership. He is Lord of all. And if you can say that, you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm going to stop there uh, and I, because I'd like to, us to sing this final song together. I want to have a little bit of time for that. As our worship team comes up to do that, let's join together in prayer as we consider these things.